0: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, March 7th, 2014. Okay, this is a program that's all over the map. There is no theological or apologetical theme today. This is just stuff that... And begs to be commented on. That's all I'm saying. Just saying that, you know.
1: Thank you for
0: tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically. Help you to think critically. Help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. One of the uh, techniques used by the devil, and I think that's the right way of putting it, is to distract Christians. Mm -hmm. So there's all, all kinds of different things we can get distracted on. And, you know, for instance, we can get distracted on eschatology. Now, eschatology is a biblical doctrine. I mean, you know, there's something about... Uh, the end times that's revealed in Scripture— and let's just put it this way: it's not much, okay? And so that, but see, the thing is, is that majoring on eschatology may be a you know a, a legitimate thing for maybe an academic person in uh, in an academic seminary setting. You know, maybe there's a person whose doctoral dissertation and specialty is uh, the Book of Revelation or eschatology or something like that. But the thing is, is that we Christians. <clears throat> We're not called to be specialists, nope, Uh, at least not specialists in only thinking on one little thing. No, (laughs) In, in, in reality, we are to be, well, generalists, okay, with this idea that everything focuses in on the center of Scripture, and that center is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And you know, with us being familiar with capable, uh learned, not illiterate in in God's word with Christ as the center, then the more and more we really understand, number 1, the depth of our own sin. Uh, that understand that we stand before God completely 100% poverty stricken. We, We got nothing. Our righteousness before God is, well, none of it is based upon our good works. Nope. Our righteousness before God, our right standing before God is purely by the grace of God and Christ's righteousness imputed to us as a gift, straight up, plain and simple, okay? With that taken care of and our... Focus then in understanding the depth of our own sin and the wonderful magnitude of the gift that is the forgiveness of sins in Christ. We now being set free from sin, uh, slavery to death, the devil, are now free to do good works and to serve our neighbor. And the way we serve our neighbor is in our vocation. The way we serve our neighbor is in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And and so you know, and you know, and listen. If salvation is completely a free gift, then you don't have to worry about doing your good works to somehow get on the ins with God. You're already in with God. And so you can actually now be set free to serve your neighbor without any strings attached. It's plain and simple. And you want them then to share the same joy that you have, the joy that you have in your salvation, which, again, requires you to understand the depth and magnitude of your sin and the great Magnimity, magnanimity, magnanimity. <laughs> I'm gonna mess that word up. But the um, incredible magnitude of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it capable of forgiving somebody even as wretched as me or wretched as you, then that brings great joy, and we can easily and with ease share that good news. In fact, um, the idea is this: is that um, if if we really, really, truly study the Scriptures with Christ at the center and understand how good the gospel is, it becomes really easy to share with your neighbors, really easy to go out and make disciples, to want to share this great joy that you have because the joy that you have is something that you then want to share with others. Whereas false doctrine and false, for lack of a better way of putting it, false emphases uh, in Scripture, they they don't generally bring comfort. They don't generally bring joy in fact oftentimes you know if you're focusing in on the wrong thing in scripture uh, it's not bringing you joy it becomes a drudgery it could be something that uh, causes great fear and uh, and it shouldn't in fact <clears throat> let me give you an idea here when when most of the time when eschatology is discussed um he, he, listen you know people are thinking oh no this is terrible. I mean, there's going to be this one world government and the one world religion, and everybody's going to bow and worship the image of the beast, and there's going to be this man of lawlessness who's going to exalt himself above everything that that calls itself God. Is just going to it's going to be awful. And, and yes, it, it's going to be awful. Okay, but see, you, you know, you're looking at the temporal here. Okay. You know, so Jesus's favorite metaphor in in, in uh, the Olivet discourse, or you know, well, not his favorite, but one of his major metaphors for the uh, for the end times, is that the end times disruption, the tib- tribulation, all that kind of stuff, he likens it to birth pains. Okay, now think with me for a second. Okay, <clears throat> think with me. Birth pains. Okay, my wife has given birth to three children mm-hmm. and, the, and they're all my own and uh, and uh, our three children, uh, when she was giving birth to them, listen, labor is for the birds, okay just I'm just saying i I'm not a big fan of labor. in fact, it's quite the ordeal. I always feel very terrible or always, always did feel very terrible for my wife while she was going through the ordeal, but at the end of it. It it, it it literally it, there 's this thing that turns on a dime, okay, and that is is that it 's labor 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 push, pain, oh uh, uh, grimacing uh, uh, and then next thing you know you hear the crying of the baby, and everything changes, all of the pain, all of the uh, you know uh, uh, of the pushing, all of the contractions, all of that is practically forgotten. As you want to look at the baby, see the baby, touch the baby, see, you know, and, and, and you hear the baby's crying and there's joy and weeping and everything that goes along with that. Okay. So here's the idea. Focusing on the the disruptions and the and the great tribulation that is the end times, okay, is to kind of miss the whole point. It, yeah. You, you got you're missing the whole point. Here's the idea is that... The, the great tribulation is the super hard labor and what's about to appear is the visible kingdom of God on earth. The final battle then has begun and we can look to the heavens and rejoice even in the midst of no, however difficult the end times are for us. Okay, um, We can look with great joy knowing that Christ is soon to appear, right? So stop focusing on the, you see, if you're focusing on Christ, keep your eyes on Christ, keep your eyes on what's coming. This is the thing that comforts us. So eschatology should be a comforting doctrine. It should be something you sit there and go, yeah, I'm not exactly looking forward to, you know, to going through any of the things that are described in Scripture that uh, Christians are said to go through uh, in, the, uh, in the last, last days. But man, I got to tell you, it's got to be worth it, okay? And the, by the way, the worst thing that can happen to you is not – and again, I mean, that's one of the themes here at Fighting for the Faith. The worst thing that can happen to you is not that you die physically. No, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die the second death, is, and that's you being tossed into the lake of fire. And that's not happened to us who are in Christ. So, listen, you, you're in Christ. You've already passed from death to life. You are already living eternal life. And you're thinking, yeah, but I don't see Jesus, and this body of mine's wearing out, and I'm starting, yeah, yeah I, I get all that. But this is all, the, you know, listen. Keep focusing on Jesus. Keep focusing on Christ and what He's done for you. Share the good news the, and the joy that you have, and the forgiveness of your sins. All of that scary eschatological stuff—you know—it's, yeah, you know, it's nothing. It's nothing. And, and I'm—how can you say it's nothing? It's nothing because Christ is coming, and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, and all of the all of the ragings of the devil, his demon, and his followers. It's all going to come to nothing. It's all going to be kaput. It's going to be, it's totally fruitless. In fact, the deeds of darkness are referred to as the fruitless deeds of darkness. Do you think for a second that Satan's going to be able to take over everything and rule forever here? Not on your life. Everything you see is coming to an end, including your physical body. So trust Christ and look forward to what is coming and see... Good, sound biblical theology creates comfort for Christians. It comforts us when the focus is on Christ and what He's doing. Yeah, another way to think of it is is that you know, listen, we've been in the last days since Christ, you know, ascended, mm-hmm. and um, and so there's some weird way. There's a weird way of talking about it. Unfortunately, the, the some of the emergence have hijacked this language, and it's unfortunate that they have. But see, here's the idea: is that we as Christians are soldiers of the Future coming soon to be revealed kingdom of God, visibly revealed. Until then, it's not visibly revealed. Okay, but you know, the way you think of it is this is that when Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, that was D Day. Okay, and if you know anything about history, you know, work with me here for a second here. When the Allied forces landed on Normandy and the Nazis were not able to roll them back. Into the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. What happened? Okay. Well, Rommel, one of the famous Nazi generals, he said this, okay, after the Nazis were not able to win after D-Day. And okay, so this is all the way in June, okay? We've lost the war. That's what he said. He said, we have lost the war. The Nazis have lost the war. The war was lost on D-Day. And you're thinking, It was? Because, I mean, that thing stretched out for almost another year. I know. I know. But the war was lost on D-Day. So listen, Satan, the, the war was lost when Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven. The war was lost. It's, I mean... Now, does that mean that there's not battles yet to be waged? of course there's battles to, yet to be waged, okay, but you know there's there's you know so think of the last day as like the ultimate spiritual nuclear bomb that 's going to kind of f- finally just put an end to all of this until then, the kingdom of God continues to advance, and the kingdom of God grows when people are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, so go and preach the good news, tell people about the forgiveness of sins tell. Everybody about how Christ has forgiven you and how wretched you are and how blessed you are by what Christ has done for you. This is great joy. And yes, the world's going to go crazy. It's going to go crazy. This is how I read the book. The book says the world's going to go crazy. And you know what? Even in the midst of all that craziness and chaos, Christ hasn't forgotten you. Not at all. No, all of these are but birth pains and the visible kingdom of God soon to be revealed. Look to the heavens. Your help is coming from the Lord. He will be here soon enough. Keep trusting and take comfort in him because the worst thing that can happen to you is not that you die. No, the worst thing that can happen to you is the second death and you are in Christ and so you don't need to worry about that. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, we have a 30-goal-of-the-apocalypse co-profit of the End Times update. Now, you should have figured that out based upon my monologue. Um, but, um, you know, listen, things are going crazy out there in the Ukraine. Uh, you know, you've got Russia getting ready to do whatever it's going to do. And, of course... William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co prophet of the end times, he is Johnny on the spot. And I'm afraid with this whole Russia Ukraine thing going on and the four blood moons. I mean, we, he, William Tapley might go to wall to wall prophetic coverage. And, uh, you know, I always worry about that guy. So we're going to, you know, so he's finally decided to weigh in on the Russia thing. And it's somehow tied to the four blood moons, which, by the way, you don't need to worry about the four blood moons. I mean, it's just, uh, anyway, so we'll we'll take a listen to uh, the William Tapley update, and then what we'll do is we'll take a break. We'll come back. We've got a quick Glory of Zion uh, update. Uh, another one of Pierce's ponderous prophecies. We'll take a listen to that. And uh, to end up the uh, the first hour, we're going to go back in time to the uh, Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. And him discussing the idea of vision casting and where the vision comes from. And I think it's good for you to hear it from Perry Noble himself so that you you understand exactly what it is that the major seeker-driven leaders are teaching all of these younger seeker-driven church planners and leaders about vision casting. And, we'll, of course, we'll offer a, a biblical corrective to that. And then in hour number two, oh, boy, listen— you don't want to miss hour number two. We will be doing a, another Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon, and he's been preaching through the book of Genesis, and you are going to love this. Now, have you ever struggled with Genesis chapter 22? Genesis 22 is the account where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, the son of promise, right? And you're thinking, what do you do with that? uh oh, ha, ha. The answer is, you preach Christ from that text, because Christ is all over it. In fact, Pastor Charmley will do exactly that in hour number two today for our good sermon to end off the week. He's going to be preaching on Genesis chapter 22 and talking about how God provided the sacrifice. It's it's just Brilliant! It'll be comforting. I, it's just, you're going to love it. So that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since we are starting out with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, Co-Prophet of the End Time update, that requires us to do, well, this. <music>
2: and two-third eagles' tomb. Doom and gloom, God is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon, you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom, very soon, rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom, very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom.
0: And generous today. Maybe we should listen to verse number two.
2: Don't be dumb. Rapture comes long before the seventh crown. Don't be dumb. It will be as in the days of Noah's flood. Rapture comes. Lot and Noah did not have to shed their blood. Don't be dumb. Rapture comes, trim your wick or face the gun. Don't be dumb. Rapture comes, fill your lamps. There won't be oil for everyone.
0: There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's been a while since we played verse number two. Doom and gloom. Okay, so uh, with uh, things heating up in Russia, you, you just knew that William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, would have to weigh in regarding what's going on. And of course, there's only one thing William Tapley could do with something like that. He must put it into the framework of World War Three. which, if you're a listener to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you know that World War Three actually began years ago <laughs> with some um, squabble with North Korea. But uh, William Tapley, being the astute prophetic guy that he is... (coughs) Hang on, i got a hairball. (coughs) (laughs) Uh, ...has tied all this to the four blood moons. Oh, yeah, here we go. Here's William Tapley.
2: Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. This is part three in my series on the prophetic four blood red moons, which will begin next month. And they are a prophecy that 666, that is the Antichrist, is about to take over the entire planet. And these four lunar eclipses are separated by exactly six lunar months. And Dr. Hagee has written a book saying that Vladimir Putin is going to be defeated by Almighty God. And that is wishful thinking. Those are cushions. Dr. Hagee wants to be a popular prophet. And you are not a popular prophet if you tell the truth about the end times.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man.
0: I just, you know, man, the irony of... (laughs) William Tapley saying he's not a popular prophet because he tells the truth. You can't write comedy like that.
2: A lot of my subscribers have been asking me about Vladimir Putin and the Russians moving into the Ukraine. And if you think they are going to stop at the Crimea, again, you like cushions and pillows. This is the beginning of the kings of the East invading the West, as prophesied in the book of Revelation. And you won't believe this, but Dr. Hagee, in his book, Four Blood Moons, says that Almighty God is going to beat Vladimir Putin. And that is one of the biggest cushions of all. Let me read what Dr. Hagee says on page 121. The point is this. God Almighty created the Jewish state and has sworn to defend it. Anyone, politicians from Haman to Hitler, military giants from Goliath to Iran, or any tormentor from Pharaoh to Putin that presents an existential threat to Israel will utterly be destroyed by the hand of God. Dr. Hagee, your pillows are leading the people astray.
0: Where is Putin threatened to attack Israel? The only thing a prophet really should be doing
2: is telling Israel and America to repent. Uh,
0: Will you repent of your omen uh, reading and interpreting, William Tapley?
2: And that's what God is telling us with these four blood moons.
0: But nowhere in... Yeah, God's not telling us nothing with the four blood moons. Your book, Dr. Hagee, do you tell Israel
2: they must repent? And why should they? If God is going to defend them, come hell or high water, there is no incentive for them to stop breaking the Ten Commandments. And here is how you say, miraculously, God is going to defeat Putin, as you write on page 23. The fact that God hurled stones from heaven to defend Israel in Joshua 10, is living proof that God will use stones as a weapon of war to crush the invading Iranian and Russian
0: forces. Hagee actually says that? Coming against Israel. Boy, that's a twisting of Joshua 10. This will happen as recorded by the
2: prophet Ezekiel in chapter 38. Dr. Hagee, you are making a grave error.
0: Yeah, um, it's not like you don't make grave errors in your prophetic interpretations on a weekly basis, Mr. Tapley. Events
2: in the Middle East are not leading up to the Ezekiel 38 war. They are leading up to
0: the Daniel 9 war. But now (laughs) let's... Correcting false doctrine with false doctrine. William Tapley, there you go. Look at Ezekiel
2: 38 and see if we can find Iran and Russia as you claim. Ezekiel 38, verse 3. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I come against you, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, I agree with you, Dr. Hagee. In Ezekiel 38, God will do the fighting against the enemies of Israel. But Gog is the Antichrist. Are you saying that Putin is the Antichrist? And Meshach and Tubal are parts of Turkey. Are you saying that Turkey, currently in the Middle East, is a threat to Israel? Ezekiel 38, verse 5. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shields and helmets. Yes, Dr. Hagee, Persia does include Iran. But are you saying that Libya... And Ethiopia, which today is
0: the zoo. Yeah, I, I need some kind of an infographic to help me understand what on earth he's talking about. Now, here's the problem, okay? Over and again, William Tapley is a guy who, kind of like Don Quixote, has fried his brain. And unfortunately, he's fried his brain on eschatology and really believes that uh, he's got some kind of inside eschatological interpretive track, And his (laughs) track record is perfectly miserable. Um, And again, he's into interpreting omens and stuff like that. But see, here's the deal. There's a lot of folks who are spending a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, trying to interpret the prophetic tea leaves. And, you know, listen, you know, to sit here and say Putin is the Antichrist or that person's the Antichrist, listen, we'll know the Antichrist when he shows up. Scripture describes him as the man of lawlessness. He's going to exalt himself above all things that are worshipped or called gods and demand that everybody in the world worship him. When that guy shows up, you'll say, oh, he's the, yeah, until then, just carry on and keep preaching Jesus and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and make disciples and teach them God's word and you you know, and don't sweat all of this stuff. You know, we can't stop it from happening. We can't make it happen. It's all going to happen in God's good time. Stay on track. Keep on focus and don't. Sweat it. Good eschatology comforts us. Jesus is coming back. He's going to make his dwelling place among us. New heavens, new earth. It's going to be fantastic. And it's world without end forever and ever. And when it's going to happen, I, I got to tell you, can't happen soon enough do i need to sit here and try to figure out strategically when all of this is gonna no you you know listen there, there won't be anybody on youtube having fights about interpretations when all of this stuff really goes down so you don't need to sweat it keep focusing on christ read your bible and the in good eschatology like i said is comforting it's not crazy making all right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Like I said, we've got a Chuck Pierce update, Pierce's Ponderous Prophecies, as well as a Perry Noble update uh, where he talks about where the source of his vision comes from. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
2: We don't need to rethink Christianity we need to rediscover it you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate Christian radio We'll be taking your false doctrine now <laughs>
4: presents Church Day Select. And, uh, greetings to the Wallace Tapley show I'm your host, Wallace Tapley And my official title is the only Mostly accurate prophet of the end times Uh, some of my competitors Call me the second and 2 weasel Of the apocalypse, but I do my best To ignore their comments of hate And derision I, I do have an update this week Ah, uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations From God this week have told me something Very, very special It should be coming in right about Now This is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who's currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, Make that five hundred thousand. Ten thousand. Five. Oh, um, yes. You're receiving five euros today. Heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, This could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. I I mean the LA Lakers. No, that's not right either. I, I, I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Stapley Show. Goodbye!
0: More for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's Featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices so visit pirate christian radio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today and remember a portion of your purchase at cheapo air goes to support pirate christian radio Morning, focusing on the doom and gloom of the last days is to kinda miss the point. The point is focusing on Christ and the soon-to-be-revealed visible kingdom. Aw, can't wait. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can uh, partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the middle of the page, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month, the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right moving along time for a new Apostolic reformation
4: update what do you want to do tonight
5: same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. A laboratory mice, the team has been The Pinky, the pinky and the brain, 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 brain. brain.
0: Right, uh, So uh, we're heading over to the gloryofzion.org um, website, uh, which is uh, home for the uh, curated prophecies of Chuck Pierce, who is apparently one of the visible apostles here on the earth. And I'm going to be, well, I'm going to reveal to you exactly why it is that I'm playing this before our Perry Noble update. The reason why is this because what you're going to hear from Chuck Pierce is absolute nonsense. Why should I believe that Chuck Pierce is hearing from God the Holy Spirit? Okay. Now, here's the agenda, though. The same nonsense that we're hearing from Chuck Pierce is exactly the same nonsense that we're hearing from so-called vision-casting, visionary, seeker-driven leaders like Perry Noble. So that's kind of the idea. I'm putting these together because – let's put it this way. Remember that game on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other? Uh-huh, yeah, In this particular case, we're not playing that game. We're playing this game. Both of these things are exactly the same. That's the game that we're playing. So here's Chuck Pierce um, from March 1st of this year in Corinth, Texas. Um, And the name of the prophecy is entitled, Turn and Build a New Altar of Worship. Turn and Build a New Altar of Worship. Here is Chuck Pierce. It will
5: be a time that I put my eye down on the Northeast. And I say, even a year from this day, things will change greatly upon you. For this is your year to turn back to me, saith the Lord. I say, this word that is coming forth is for you, New York. I say to you, I say, turn and allow me to move through your state. I say, turn and uh, come before me with worship. Come before me and repent of your divisions. I say, turn and come back in a new way, for this is a time that I
0: will cause New York to shake again. Oh, wow. If you live in New York, I mean, you've got a shaking coming on. You know, I feel a a gratuitous fighting for the faith musical interlude to celebrate this word of the Lord for New York. Here we go.
5: Start spreading the news.
0: New York I'm is shaking today. today. <laughs> I want to be a part of
5: it. New York, New York. New York. York.
0: Yeah, I, I'll These walk there. These vagabond shoes
5: are longing to stray right through.
0: All right, enough of that. Okay, let's continue with our New York prophecy. So those of you in New York, good news, there's going to be a shaking coming on.
5: And in these shakings, I say to you, the whole Northeast will shake. So I say to you... To my people. So is it an earthquake that's coming? You are seeking me. Seek me that I might come with power and begin to go north. I say to every state, go to the northernmost part of your
0: state. Go to the northernmost part of your state if you're in the north. So if you're in New York, go to the farthest reaches of upstate New York. Is Rochester like far enough north? You have to go farther than that. I say
5: to every nation, go to the northernmost part of your nation and begin to worship me over these next several months.
0: Can we wait until it thaws a little bit? It's been a pretty brutal winter, and, you know, traveling to the northern part of, like, your state, I mean, yeah, it's, it's still pretty cold out there.
5: And in worshiping me, I say to you, you will cause a new altar to be built that will cause me to come. I say to you...
0: So a new altar is going to be built that will cause God to come. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, this doesn't sound biblical at all. In Texas... Yeah, the reason I say that is because Christ... We don't need any altars now. Uh, Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying here? Allow
5: revival to sweep through you and allow it to come through Missouri.
0: So revival's going to sweep through me. Yeah, you, know, you know, I needed to get the cobwebs out anyway. I'm kind of glad.
5: And go north and overtake
0: New York. Sweep oh, away. yeah, there you go. Whoa, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> there you go. We got... We got direct revelation from Chuck Pierce that, you know, if you're in New York, good news is a shaking coming down. And uh, I'm not sure what that means, but go to the northernmost part of New York and there's going to be a new altar built that will cause God to um, show up. Yeah, that doesn't sound biblical at all. And um, by the way, if you think that Chuck Pierce is actually hearing from God, uh, then you probably think that so is Perry Noble, which requires us to now switch gears and talk about Perry Noble. Here we go.
3: Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with, with a flair. What with effect a little smoke is with a, with a dash of, a of hocus hocus pocus, pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air? I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with
5: a
0: flair. All right, yeah, that's right. That's uh, from Bedknobs and Broomsticks uh, with a flair. Now, what we're going to be listening to is uh, a portion of a podcast uh, put out a while ago, not, not super recently, by Perry Noble. Uh, from his Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. And uh, and if you're thinking, he has a podcast called the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast? Oh yeah, he does. In fact, um, he's his goal is to duplicate himself and a whole bunch of seeker-driven leaders and church planners so that there's a bunch of little Perry Nobles running around all over the landscape, um, which should keep you awake at night. But don't worry, Christ is coming back. Focus on Jesus. Yeah, yeah, no, they, these aren't pastors that they're producing. They're something complete. Different, And so I, I think it's good for you to hear from Perry Noble's mouth himself uh, regarding this whole idea of vision casting and where does the vision come from? Here's uh, Perry Noble and I think his co-host is, uh, is it Shane Duffy. I forget the name of the guy who's with him, but they're discussing the vision of a
3: leader. Here we go. Today we want to focus on the source of that alarm, the source of the vision for your church or organization. Obviously, I have with me Perry Noble, and Perry, the first question I have for you is why is having a specific vision such an important thing for a pastor or a leader? I think you can't lead effectively without a vision Uh, because here's – now,
0: you can't lead effectively without a vision. Now, I want to make something clear. He's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Oh, why is it important? Well, you can't lead without a vision. Oh, well, yeah, I guess that's true. I can't lead without a vision. And I'm a leader, right? So I can't lead without a vision. And so what they're doing is telling you why it's important before they tell you where it's coming from. So I'm going to... Spoiler alert here. I'm going to tell you what they're going to tell you, okay, that they haven't told you yet, and that is is that this vision is a direct revelation from God, just like, well, Chuck Pierce experienced there at uh, Glory of Zion. Yeah, it's a direct revelation from God that they're talking about. This is not... Christ has revealed his vision in Scripture, and the vision is this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I've commanded you, right? Um, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins you know, to all nations starting in Jerusalem. That, that's not what he's talking about. You know, he's not talking about something you can actually find in Scripture. No, this is the pastor making himself worthy you know, by showing he's serious to God. God, I'm serious about receiving a vision, so I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast. And God's going to sit there in heaven and go, Okay, well, prove to me that you're you're worthy to receive the vision. By the way, this is what Dan Sutherland teaches, and you can find this, by the way, in the uh, Archives of Fighting for the Faith. Just type in Dan Sutherland and go back and listen to the uh, the purpose-driven hostile takeover tactics uh, that they employ here. And this is what they teach, that um, the pastors to, you know, the church planters to think, oh, well, I, I need a vision, a specific vision to follow. And so, Lord, I, I'm going to prove myself worthy to receive this vision, and so the poor pe- pastor, maybe he goes on a 40-day fast or something like that, you know, maybe he crawls on his, uh, on his belly across glass, you know while praying the rosary. You know? and then God sits there and goes, "Oh, I'm finally convinced this guy is really serious about receiving the vision and goes, And he unzaps it into the brain. And that's the direct revelation he's talking about.?
3: No joke. That's what he's referring to, but we continue. Here's the trick. If you don't have a vision um, for where the church is supposed to be going, then you can call anything a win. You can call, okay, well, yeah, that's what we intended to do. Well, that many people showed up for that. Well, that's what we intended to do. Well, this is what our church... Yeah,
0: notice all of this is just... Perry Noble giving us what he thinks sounds reasonable. This is called speculative theology. This is not biblical theology. This is just Perry Noble's just shooting from the hip. Well, I think it's important because this. And uh, all of this is, you know, in the true
3: sense of the word, total, complete, utter speculation. Saul happened this year. Well, that's what we intended to do. But a vision, um, I think Andy Stanley defines it as a picture of what could be and should be. Mm, yeah, and how does God define it in his word? Where can I go to find the Important vision casting passages in Scripture. When you get when you get that driving you, not only should this be, but this could be if we did this this way. When you get that type of passion and energy driving you, then it forces you to define the win. And I think that's the the problem. Yeah, where
0: in the Bible does it say that it's really important that a pastor receive a vision so that he can he's forced to define a win? Where does the Bible say this? Answer:
3: nowhere. Many times with churches and church leaders is we don't want to define the win, so we'll just say that anything works um, so we don't have to be held accountable. And defining the win, is that important just for staff and volunteers, or is that important for the whole congregation? It's important for the whole congregation uh, because the people showing up every week are showing up um, because they want to be taught, um, they want to be ministered to, uh, but really they they really do want to be led, and they want to be led Well, um, I I remember when I first became a Christian. One of the things that attracted me to the church uh, that that I wound up attending, receiving Christ in, um, wasn't the music style, and it wasn't um, it, it wasn't any of the things that that I think churches focus on too much today. It was there was a man of God in the pulpit or you know the stage or whatever you have in your church today who had a vision and said, "This is where I believe our church is going. This is what." We're going to accomplish, and this is how I think you fit into this. There was a bigger picture, and I realized that I was a. Part so you g- get what he's just said there. He had a vision, and he com- he
0: cast the vision to let everybody know how they fit into the vision. Direct revelation, prophetic revelation, supposedly from God,
3: part of something bigger than myself, and that's. That's pretty exciting to to just the guy that was sitting in the pew week after week, going, "Man, I, I need to, I need to jump in, I need to get involved." That's really neat to hear. I mean, all, I know all of us want to know where we're going, and so defining the win for staff, congregation, or, or in any organization is so important for the leader to do that. Uh, I want to talk just a second about this idea, this even this word, vision, because there are some people, uh, especially in the church world, that. Uh, understand that when you say the word "vision uh, or and understand what that means, but there are some that question this idea of a vision. Why are you okay with that word? or why are you okay with the the phrase having a vision? You know it's it's so funny. i've I've heard that Shane, and some people go, well, the whole idea of having a vision sounds very mystical. And I'm like, well, it's um supernatural. and so if you're uncomfortable with the supernatural, then you're probably uncomfortable with, with the Bible. And um, if you so, he just admitted that the vision
0: he received it's supernatural. Okay, direct, prophetic
3: revelation from God. Preaching the whole thing. Um, I, I I think a vision is a supernatural thing. If you in reading through Scripture, there is not one example of a man or a woman that accomplished anything significant that wasn't driven by a vision from God.
0: Okay, yeah, again, now, here's the issue. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that pastors are to expect to receive an individual, unique, prophetic vision from God on how to do church and to define what a win is. Nowhere in Scripture. So what he's doing here is, is, this is hermeneutical gymnastics. Okay, well, well, we could look through scripture here. Abraham had a vision. Yeah. Moses had a vision. Yeah. Um, Paul had a vision. Yeah. Um, you know, David had a vision. Yeah. So therefore, that means God's going to give me one. Wrong. No, it doesn't actually follow. Okay. The pastoral office already has a job description and duties that are associated with it, and Jesus has set the vision for the church in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded you. Straight up, plain and simple. A pastor is somebody who's put into the office of the pastoral ministry. Scripture refers to it as a pastor, and it's God and the Holy Spirit who calls them, and that there are duties— to preach the Word, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, administer the Lord's Supper, to baptize and to teach all that Christ has commanded. You know, there's, a, there's a regular office for all of this. And nowhere in Scripture ever, ever, does it say that a pastor is going to receive a unique vision from God. So this is a... This is a complete Bible twist on his part to justify a brand new practice that is new, brand new, you know, new on the scene for the uh, seeker-driven ecclesiology, and he's trying to make a biblical argument that, well— um, Moses had a vision, so I get to, I get one too. No, that d- nowhere in Scripture we led to believe that you're supposed to, as a pastor, receive a unique vision. Christ has already set the vision and the, what the ch- church is supposed to
3: be doing, and we do that until he shows up again. There's not one example. David was driven by a vision. Somebody needs to go whip Goliath's butt. And so he walked down into the valley and did it. Um, Noah was driven by a vision. Somebody needs to build this boat. Doesn't make sense to build a boat. It's never rained. We're in the middle of a flipping desert. Um, I think I'm gonna do this. It was a vision by where does it say that Noah was in a desert? It doesn't. By the way, it saved his life. I would say that Noah would probably say that vision's important. Nehemiah was driven by a vision. Somebody needs to rebuild this wall. I'm sure that the people in Jerusalem had prayed about the wall, gone to Bible. Yeah, again, show
0: me the passage of Scripture that says pastors are supposed to receive a unique vision. In fact, show me from the writings of the church fathers how the apostles taught all of the pastors that they put in place in the churches that they planted. Show me from the writings of the church fathers the importance of receiving and casting vision. I mean, if this is really a biblical doctrine, then Christian pastors will have been
3: practicing this going all the way back wouldn't they Bible studies on how to build effective walls around cities that had been destroyed Um, expect but Nehemiah was the guy that actually did it Uh, I would say Jesus was pretty much driven by a vision when the Bible says he set his face toward Jerusalem he didn't do that because of all the warm fuzzies that were going to happen to him there he was driven by a vision Um, Paul was driven by a vision when Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, now I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. And then he wound up writing most of the New Testament, but, which, by the way, came out of his vision from God. So I would say that a vision is supernatural. And if you don't have a supernatural vision from God, you're probably not going to accomplish anything in the natural that's worth mentioning anyway. A, wow, what a completely blasphemous
0: and ridiculous statement and a twisting of God's Word. Again, if pastors are supposed to receive unique visions from God, how come it doesn't say that in Scripture? If pastors are supposed to receive unique visions from God, how come the early church didn't talk about the importance of casting and receiving vision? Hmm? Yeah, so, yeah, this is Perry Noble making it very clear. This is a prophetic vision, and what's his justification? Well, Paul had a vision, and, uh, you know, well, Timothy didn't. Titus didn't. Uh-huh. In fact, they were doing what Christ told them to do, when Jesus cast the vision for the church. And you know what they were doing? Preaching the word, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. So I thought it was worth uh, you hearing. And by the way, like I said earlier, what we're hearing here, not only is it not scriptural, it's of the same stripe. It's from the same tree and it's a bad tree that bears only bad fruit uh, that we, you know, where we get the same prophetic insights uh, like of Chuck Pierce. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley is going to preach Christ from Genesis chapter 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac. Mm-hmm. You're going to love it, and he's not a visionary, vision casting pastor. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you
4: in some. <sharp inhale>
0: Number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review. We're gonna actually I don't review it because it's too good to interrupt. Although from time to time I do that with a good sermons, but we've got a good Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon queued up for you today. Great way to end off the week. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's great sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church. Hanley stoke on Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. It's a mouthful, let me tell you. The name of the sermon we will be listening to is entitled The Substitute Sacrifice, based upon Genesis chapter 22. And if you've always wondered, what do you do with that text? I mean, what's going on there? The answer is it's all about Christ and the cross and God providing the sacrifice. And that's what you're going to hear Pastor Charmley do. Now, you'll note that Pastor Charmley begins by reading the biblical text in context without interrupting it. And he goes back through and then he preaches what's there in the text. Good way to, to actually handle a biblical text do it faithfully, and then he's going to preach Christ from it. Because yes, Jesus is right there, smack dab in the middle of Genesis chapter 22. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here is Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley, and his sermon entitled "The Substitute Sacrifice." Here we go.
1: Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the Book of Genesis, the first book, of Moses, the first book in the Bible and chapter 22 Genesis chapter 22 Moses has recorded how God promised to Abraham a land and a posterity, a seed and how though it seemed and it was humanly impossible God provided miraculously for a son to be born to Abraham and Sarah, and that son's name was Isaac. So, Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the land, or do anything to him. But now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behind him there was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram, and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba now it came to pass after these things it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. Who's his firstborn? Who's his brother? Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's concubine. His concubine whose name was Abraham's brother. His concubine whose name was Ruma, also bore Tiban, Gaham Fahash and Maha. We trust God to bless the reading of his most holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering there is here this great promise this great word of faith on the part of a man of faith Abraham for Abraham believed God and it was created to him for righteousness. That is the phrase that discloses the character of the redeemed man, Abraham. And at the center of man's relation to God is sacrifice, the offering that God both demands and gives. God calls for an offering, but God also provides the offering. And we must realize that both these things are true. We see here at the heart of this story, God's provision of the offering, of the sacrifice. So we have first of all the sacrifice that God commands. Then we see the strength of faith on the part of both Abraham and his son. Then we see the substitute that God provides. God will provide for himself the lamb and so he does. So we have first of all the sacrifice and the call went to Abraham. God tested him. Now when God tests people, as we saw this morning, God's aim, God's desire for his own when they are tested, is that they will pass the test. God is for his people, not against them. He does not bring a test to trip us up, but a test to develop us to grow our faith. He tests us because he wishes us to grow, to grow in faith and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God came to Abraham with this word. And what a word it was. God had said to Abraham, in Isaac your seed shall be called. It's In the previous chapter, chapter 21 and verse 12, in Abraham your seed shall be called. There was a promise of God. But now God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you now there seems there to be a, a contradiction does there not on the one hand God says in Isaac your seed shall be called on the other when Isaac is still unmarried not a father when there are no descendants from Isaac, Abraham is commanded to offer Isaac as a burnt offering to kill him and to burn his body. There seems to be a contradiction. God has said he will do something then he commands Abraham to do something else that in human terms could only ensure that the promise would never come to pass what then is to be done? it's a strange request a difficult request, a test Abraham could very well have said I will not do this thing he could very well have said there is a conflict one must be true and not the other which one? instead of which he obeyed but he obeyed because he believed we are told by the author of the book the epistle to the hebrews that abraham did not set these two words against one another he did not set this word in isaac your seed shall be called against the word that said sacrifice isaac but rather he believed both of them and was convinced that God would raise Isaac from the dead he said that which God's people have always said in situations like this God has said this and God has said that and I cannot see how they can possibly be compatible but God knows And God is able. And God is able even to raise the dead. And God keeps his promises. God had made that covenant. And in that covenant God had said by means of those animals split down the middle. If I do not keep my promises with my friend Abraham. Then let me be put to death. And so Abraham says this, God has said both, therefore God will do what he has promised to do, and I shall do what God has told me to do, and God will make sure that what I cannot swear, he will swear, what I cannot comprehend is comprehended in his eternal plan what I cannot do God is able to do God had spoken two certain and sure words and Abraham believed both of them and Abraham went forward Abraham believed God because Abraham knew God God was not to him the unknown God but the Athenians worshipped in ignorance but the known God who came to him who spoke to him who had revealed himself we know God because God has spoken we know God because he has come down because he has entered into personal relationships with human beings God comes to us and he comes in words of promise. And his promise is sure and certain. And oftentimes we cannot tell. We cannot understand what he is doing but we know he knows. And he is working out his purposes and all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And therefore, Abraham, hearing this command, determined to obey, to offer a sacrifice. After all, he had offered many animal sacrifices. He knew that we approached to God by sacrifice. God has spoken of this great sacrifice to take his only son whom he loved and to offer him upon the mount in the land of Moriah and he went and he obeyed that call because it was the call of God and he went there to worship so the sacrifice was commanded and the sacrifice would be provided after all Isaac was the gift of God he was the child who humanly speaking could never have been born his mother was very old and when she was young she had not been able to give birth to conceive Sarah could not have children, humanly speaking, but nothing is impossible with God. Are we not pointed, therefore, forward to that great miraculous child to whom all the other miraculous children in the Bible point, from Abraham to John the Baptist? They all point to the Lord Jesus who was to be born, to be a sacrifice, who was born with the cross before him, who came into this world to be the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the true, the greatest sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the sacrifice, the offering of God his son, his only son whom he loves, whom he gave to die upon a hill in the land of Moriah God asked of Abraham ultimately nothing more than God himself was going to do He does not ask of Abraham some vast deed beyond his love, but nothing more than he himself would do. So much for the sacrifice, then for the strength of Abraham. The strength of the saints of God is often a quiet strength of endurance. The race that is set before the people of God is not a sprint but a marathon, you watch these sprinters, the idea is to go as fast as they can for a step distance, 100 meters, 200, whatever it is. For the marathon runner, the aim is to endure the course, to get to the end, stamina, Perseverance is what's needed in a marathon. And the race of faith is a marathon. An endurance race. And Abraham's strength was a quiet strength of faith. the strength to do. Not to trumpet what he was doing. Not to proclaim to all the world, This I am doing. But just to do it. And to go up that path. To do, to endure, and the strength of a man whose character was formed by faith. His strength was, in many ways, really God's strength. He rested upon God, he trusted upon him, he cast himself upon him. A strength. That was founded upon his knowledge of God. His experience of God. And his certainty that God keeps his promises. The endurance of the saints is always founded upon this. The saints of the Old Testament looked forward to the one who was to come. Knowing this, God has promised. He will therefore give. The strength of the saints. In the New Testament is founded upon this great fact, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We look forward. He has said he is coming again. Therefore, we endure. Because we have a hope that is sure and certain and steadfast. The strength to endure trusting the promises of God and we see the strength of Isaac Isaac was a very quiet man a plain man dwelling in tents even as his son Jacob would be a very ordinary man a man who endured, a man who had the strength to suffer, the strength to endure. And he points us to the Lord Jesus, the great sufferer. There never was sorrow like unto his sorrow, nor suffering like under his suffering the Christian virtues are not what the world trumpets as virtues the pagan virtues are the virtues of the warrior, the virtue of conquest, the virtue of pride the Christian virtues are the virtues of the martyr, of patience, of endurance, of humility the virgin of the Lord Jesus who was meek and lowly of heart and who is meek and lowly of heart who humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross and who went forth bearing his own cross bearing the wood upon which he would be offered to that hill of Calvary even as Isaac went carrying the wood upon which he was to be offered. He went forth bearing his own cross and Christ says if any man would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To take up the cross is to be prepared to die. And to die not, The sort of death that the world rejoices in, the world glorified Lord Nelson, cut down in the moment of his victory. For the cross is the death of shame. The cross is the death of the one who is despised and rejected by men. He went forth bearing his cross, went forth to die for you and for me to offer himself. So we have the strength, the strength of the people of God but far more, far more wonderfully the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. His strength to bear not just the cross but as we sang the enormous load of human guilt. Why was it in the garden he wept and prayed and sweat as it were great drops of blood. It was not the knowledge that he was to die. Many martyrs have borne that knowledge joyfully that the day of death is at hand knowing that Christ is with them. No, it was that knowledge that he was to die under the curse. That he was to bear our sins, to die in that terrible sense. That the wrath of God was to come upon him. And yet he bore that wrath. That strength was there not to flee, but to go to the cross. Regardless of his vision of its pain. Regardless of that cup that he must drink, he would drink it. Knowing full well the pain, the suffering that we can never know. The strength for them. And then the substitute, Isaac. Now, Isaac is referred to as a lad here. How old he was is not entirely clear. But he was certainly old enough, strong enough to have fought off his father if he had wanted to. No, he yielded himself and he was laid upon that altar and upon that wood to be sacrificed and the knife was raised and Abraham said in his heart Lord you have said to me to do this thing I will leave it up to you what happens next but then at the last moment when Abraham had in his heart already offered up his son the voice comes from heaven Do not lay your hand on the land. For now I know that you fear God. Well, God knew his heart already. God does not need to discover new information that way. That's not what's being said here. Rather it's said for Abraham's sake. Just as God asks Adam, where are you not for sake of information but for Adam's sake Adam may know where he is so God tells Abraham for Abraham's sake that Abraham may know God's confidence in him and may know that God indeed recognises the depth of his faith that is tried in this way but God says The height of Abraham's faith is reached. That which could have been the depth of despair for him. If he had consulted with man, if he had said, but the dead do not rise. Instead, he said, God is able to raise the dead. And his faith reached that height. And was shown in its works as faith is shown in works. And God points him to the animal that was there already to the substitute. The Lord will provide. Abraham himself had said in faith God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now he saw Something more of that, God has provided that animal caught in the thicket. That animal that could be put in the place of Isaac and sacrificed. The Lord will provide. The Lord does provide. But then of course we are pointed even further forward to the Lord Jesus. Behold, says John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That lamb of God, that Lord Jesus Christ, that one our Saviour was provided as the lamb for a burnt offering. The Father's great gift for God so loved the world, That he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In this is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us and gave his Son. sent his Son. To be the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice that takes away our sins. The sacrifice who cried out on that cross, it is finished. One word in the Greek, tetelestai. Now in crucifixion, the victim died by slow suffocation. Someone at the end of crucifixion should not be able to shout anything at all. But he shouted It is finished. And that word rings in the ears of his people. It is finished. The substitute has died. The one offered in the place has been offered, has offered himself. And if the offering is passed, then all those for whom the offering was given are free. We are not in fear, we are not thinking, will God demand this of me as well? No payment, God cannot twice demand. Once at my bleeding, short his hand, and then again at mine. He has given the substitute. He did not spare his own son, but truly gave him up for us all. There was no necessity placed on God to do that. God was not bound to save anybody. Justice demanded the soul that sins it shall die. But grace says here is a substitute. Justice demanded that on you and I the wrath of God must fall. But God in his grace sent forth his Son as a substitute and upon him the wrath of God fell and he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The offering, the sacrifice, the one who has borne it all for you and for me, who died. Who truly died. Even as that. Ram died in the place. Of Isaac. Christ died. In the place of his own. And all who believe upon him. Can say this. The lamb has died for me. For me he has died. My sins he bore. In my place condemned he stood he is my substitute, he is my Lamb. Even as Isaac could look at that burnt offering at that altar and say that was my place, that he, that ram, has taken it. So we can look at that cross of Christ and say that is my place, but he has taken it, he has borne it, he has suffered, his blood is shed. And he is risen. Is risen indeed. He is risen from the dead. Put to death for our offences. Delivered up. And raised again for our justification. His cross declares this. He himself bore our sins. His open tomb declares this he has fully paid the price and there is nothing left to pay it is not that he has borne the penalty for most of our sins not that he has borne the penalty for all but one of our sins but he has borne the penalty for every sin he has suffered The wrath of God that we might be made children of God. And he has risen from the dead declaring that every one of his people is justified, declared righteous in him. Indeed it is his blood, his death, his cross, his sacrifice that speaks peace to our hearts. Not our sacrifice, but God's is shown here. Abraham first thought that he would offer a sacrifice. But found in the end it was all about God's sacrifice. For God is the Father who did not spare his own Son, but freely gave him up for us all. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, He is the Son who carries His own cross, who carries the wood of His offering up that hill outside Jerusalem. He is the one who meekly lays Himself upon that cross and suffers them to nail His hands and His feet to its wood. And he is the substitute, he is the one who himself bore our sins, who himself paid our price, who himself paid our debt. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering. Praise his name, he has done so. Praise his name, the Lamb is the Lord Jesus.
0: Amen. Amen. Told you it was about Jesus. What'd you think?